Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who died for us. We thank you for all of your faithfulness that every day the sun rises and sets and all of creation is governed by your love and your sovereign wisdom. We praise you for that. We thank you that in all things you are always in control and nothing surprises you or catches you off guard. We give you praise for that. Um, we thank you for what we've been learning from Mark chapter 13, that Jesus is coming back and the dead shall be raised and those with faith in Christ will be redeemed. We worship you for that. I ask that as we continue to discuss your word in adult Sunday school, that you would guide our conversation, let it be pleasing and honoring to you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. We're going to be in Mark chapter 13. We'll just finish up a couple of verses in that chapter, and then we will move on. Um, I appreciate Jonas's hard work and uh, very thorough teaching on the topic of the parousia and eschatology. I thought he did a really good job. Um, that was a lot to try and cover in two weeks. There are some seminary classes that are entire semesters dealing with that subject matter. I will tell you that, to be honest, I take a slightly different view, but one of the things that's kind of beautiful about Maricopa Springs is on this particular topic, we do not have an official position. Our official position is to not have an official position. And the reason why that's the case on the area of the routine, uh, return of Christ, the parousia, and eschatology, and chapters like um, Mark 13 and you know Matthew 23, 24. The reason why is because, as Jonas pointed out, uh, these are some difficult um, passages to interpret. And I think a lot of honest scholars and preachers and um, biblical teachers have moved their position at various points in their ministry. So um, I think Jonas did an excellent job defending his position from the text. Um, and so rather than continue on that topic, we're going to deal with some additional uh, aspects of uh, Mark's text here. So we're going to pick up in Mark 13, starting in verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servant in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Um, 
let me before we get into this, let me mention one other thing on these topics of scripture where we might disagree in our interpretation. Um, when I'm walking through those disagreements, there's usually three things that I'm calling people to. The first one is that their interpretation of the text be biblical, right? You don't get to just say, well, I don't feel like God would do that, or I don't think God would act that way. Well, that's irrelevant, no offense, but God acts however he wants, however he pleases, and so we need to approach scripture biblically. The next one would be that we need to discuss these things with grace, grace, right? Um, when we're dealing with areas of biblical theology that are uh, less, um, maybe less essential, then we want to discuss those things with grace, right? I'm not talking about a doctrine like the deity of Jesus, but I'm saying, hey, here's a passage in Mark that different people agree or disagree on that are faithful believers. We want to have that discussion graciously. Um, and then the third one would be just that in our humility, we would honor Jesus, right? That's, that's the goal in even those conversations. Um, all right, hopefully that makes sense. Let's move on. So verse 28, Jesus t tells us to learn a lesson from the fig tree. Um, you know, I've noticed that outside my front window, the tree that is in my front yard has undergone some changes, right? It used to have these big green leaves and then the leaves began to turn a little bit and then they fell off and then it looked like a bare stick in my front yard and just within like the last two weeks, some new buds have started to grow. We can tell by looking at trees like that, that things are changing, right? And so Jesus uses this wonderful object lesson to say, look at the fig tree. You can see from the changes in the fig tree that the summer season is coming. And in the same way, Jesus says, you should be able to perceive from what's occurring around you in the world that the coming of Christ is soon. Um, and this is kind of weird because since the time of Jesus, really, the church age, the current moment has been discussed by the church as kind of the last moment, right? The Bible says these are the last days. Well, that was written 2,000 years ago. So we are in the last days now. Uh, okay, so, but, but you've got this weird thing going on here. Do you see this in 28 through, tw uh, through 29? Jesus says, look at the fig tree and you will see an indicator of what is to come. This will be a sign that things are changing. Just like you know that the tree is changing, which means summer's coming, so too these things will take place and you'll know the Son of Man is coming. But then look at verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of God, but only the Father. So does that seem like kind of a contradiction? No. No, why not? Because God is the ultimate, you know. Um, he's the beginning and the end, so he knows everything. But he, so that's absolutely true. And I think you can totally draw that from verse 32. But don't you think it's weird that Jesus says, hey, look at the fig tree and you'll know what's coming. And then he says, but nobody knows what's coming except the Father. Well, he says the hour. He says the hour. Yeah. The hour. Ah. specific. 
Right, okay, thank you. So this is not as difficult as it might at first appear, right? Verse 28, Jesus says you can perceive that summer is near, but you don't know the exact day or hour, right? Um, Verse 32 then, he is speaking of precise times. So there's no contradiction here, there's no conflict here. You know, this is typical of anything that you might encounter in the Bible where you're like, ooh, this seems like a contradiction. Well, no, if you think about it and you work through it, there's a way to resolve those uh, perceived difficulties. But verse 33 is the real point. And um, notice the repetition here. Okay, if something is... The Bible needs to say it was something one time in order for, be, for it to be important, but if it repeats it, that's emphatic. So notice how many times Jesus says, keep awake. Verse 33, be, be on guard, keep awake. Uh, end of verse 34, stay awake. Verse 35, stay awake. Verse 36, or I'm sorry, 7, stay awake. Right? So that's where Jesus is driving all of this to this idea, be ready. Um, Jesus never intended his teaching about the, um, the mystery of the exact day or hour to be fuel for Christians to sort of sit around and do nothing. Okay. So when Jesus says, you don't know the day or the hour, he follows it up emphatically with this idea. So be ready, because it could be any minute, okay? Um, So I think there is potentially a little bit of danger in sort of saying, well, you know, we're looking for these signs and these things to happen before Jesus comes. I do think the Bible says there will be those kinds of things, but you don't know how quickly that might happen. All of that could happen in an instant, and then Jesus comes back, right? So... The, the clear implication of the teaching at this point is uh, as believers, as disciples, in this moment, whatever this moment is, be doing always consistently, faithfully the things that would please Jesus so that at the moment that he returns, he finds you ready. Does that make sense? Like, so is, is this like, um, I remember that the... the a parable about the, the, the bride. The bride that, yeah, you know, absolutely. Hi, guys, come the on five in. Or the five There's some seats over here. Yeah, absolutely. It's the same same idea, right? Uh, the parable of the virgins with the lamps and they don't have their oil ready. Yeah, and this is so incredibly um, important. Welcome, newlyweds. We should have what? Applaud, yes, for the newlyweds. We are glad that you guys are here. It's good to see you. Um, Yeah, the point is we just need to be ready, right? And uh, it would be, again, very inappropriate for us to say something like, well, you know, Jesus said the sun would be darkened before he comes back. So I'll live in sin today because the sun's in the sky, right? Still shining brightly. That's not at all his point. We're in Mark chapter 13, by the way. All right, so let's come back a little bit to verse 31, because I don't think we touched on this quite enough. Mark 13, verse 31. Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 
Uh, this is a really incredible verse here. Jesus is indicating that his words are substantial, substantive. Uh, there's this old saying, maybe you've heard it, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Right? More and more we're living in a culture that thinks that words can actually hurt you. But sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. The, that saying is significant because what it is reminding us is that words are incorporeal, right? A corpse is a body. Incorporeal means that they have no substance to them. They communicate ideas. They have force in inspiring things, but they don't, they don't have material essence to them. And what Jesus is indicating here is that his words are more substantive than material reality itself. The words of Jesus are more corporeal than even reality. In fact, think about this. How does God bring creation into existence? By his word. It's just his word. Right? Like if I stand here and I say to my mug, more coffee. Unfortunately, it's empty. And like it's going to stay empty. It doesn't matter how many times I use my words to try and bring more coffee into existence inside my mug. It's not going to happen. But with God, literally, his word is so substan substantive that it brings into existence the things that are not, is what scripture says. Um, so this helps us understand an important concept that the material world as we know it, reality as we know it, is perishable. Uh, you know, even the atheists, the evolutionists say, well, life on Earth is uh, limited because at some point, you know, five billion years from now, the matter in the sun is going to burn up and it's going to go out and everything will die at that point. No, it will happen when Jesus says it's time for that, for this world, this reality, this creation as we know it to come to an end. And so... What is ultimate reality is God himself and his words, which are an emanation of his very nature, his very character, his ultimate reality. So God, then let me ask a question. Why can God's words not pass away? He says um, the word was God. Like, the word is as much as him as he is. Yeah. yeah. So it's... It, if his word was to pass away, that means he would have to pass away. Right, exactly. Because God himself cannot pass away. Right? I mean, eventually your words will pass away. The things that you've said will be lost to history. Even the things that you've written, most likely, will not be remembered. But not so with God. Because God himself cannot pass away. The things that he declares are eternal. Just like he is eternal. So this should uh, cause us, I think, to ponder very carefully how we treat the Bible. Um, the words that God declares in Scripture are of eternal significance. I mean, at, at different points in my ministry, I've had people say things like this to me. Well, Grady, I know what the Bible says about that, but there's no but. Yeah. Like, if this is what the Bible says, then for that's you. it. That's it for you. Right. So we should think very carefully about how we treat the Word of God. We don't worship the Bible itself. 
Um, the Bible is not God, but the Bible does reveal to us God. This, this book is an extension of God himself, we might say, because God has declared these things to us, and God's word is abiding and eternal, just like God himself is eternal. Okay? So we dare not give less honor to the Bible than Jesus himself gives. Certainly we dare not change it or reject it or edit it according to our own will or purpose. Um, just because this has been in the news a lot this week, I saw this ridiculous um, you know, news segment where this man who thinks he's a woman, this transgender man, is sitting at this news desk and he's saying... God made me in her image. Oh my gosh. And uh, of course it's so ironic because this is a movement of people that want us to use the pronouns of their preference when we speak of them. But they won't use the pronouns that God has revealed about himself in his word. Right? The Bible says God is he. That's the pronoun used. Um, So we dare not do things like that. Right? We dare not say that, you know, the Bible says drunkenness is a sin. But uh, what does it matter, right? We dare not say the Bible says lust is adultery, and therefore then we ignore it and we diminish these things, right? So um, it's very important that we have as much respect for the Word of God as God himself has in it. I'm reminded of Psalm 119. Does anybody know what Psalm 119 is all about? It's about the word, right? It's about God's commands, his decrees, his law, his his testimonies. And uh, what's unique about Psalm 119? What? It is the longest chapter in the Bible. Go read Psalm 119. It's usually, the way that I read my Bible, I'm, I read through like usually kind of a couple Psalms each day. Psalm 119 takes me sometimes multiple days. It's that long. And you know where it's located? almost smack dab in the very center of your Bible. So I find those things interesting. Okay, verse 32 uh, might be another but another bit of a, might be a challenging verse for another reason, okay? We already talked about the one, which is the lesson of the fig tree in contrast with the, no one knows the day or the hour. Does anybody see another challenging aspect to verse 32? Yeah, right? If Jesus is God, how is it possible that God himself does not know the day or the hour? Um, This is very challenging. So here we're forced to reflect on the two natures of Christ. The technical theological word here, does anybody know it? It starts with an H. Hypostatic union. Okay? So Christ is fully God and fully man. There are some things that Jesus in his divine nature can do that in his human nature he cannot do. And there are some things that in his human nature he can do which he cannot do in his divine nature. Okay? So let me give you an example here. And man, this is just a theological day at church today, both in class and in my sermon as well. Um, As a man... Jesus can die. Can God die? No. God is eternal. He cannot die. But Jesus as man can die. And he truly did die. 
and we must affirm that he died because that's what scripture teaches. We can even say God died on the cross. But by that, we really mean Jesus in his human nature died on the cross because the truth of the matter is God cannot die. Okay. Then I'll give you another example. As eternal, infinite God, Jesus can bear the full weight of sin. As man, man cannot bear the full weight of sin. So even with his sinless human nature, since to be human is to be limited in nature, Jesus as man cannot atone for the infinitely offensive sin of mankind. So now we begin to see why it is absolutely essential that in our doctrine of the Son of God, we keep in mind both of these truths. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Okay, so the point here in this verse then, in verse 28, is, I'm sorry, in verse 32, is that Jesus as true man does not know the hidden secret of the Father, and he can truly and honestly say that. Okay? That was a lot. Anybody have questions or comments or thoughts on any of that? What's that? Yes, please. So this one, this uh, the dual nature of Jesus, that he's both, both uh, truly man and truly God, it explains all kinds of texts that people will use to, to say, see, Jesus is not God. So many texts. So it says Jesus was tempted, but then in other texts it says God can't be tempted, and he does not tempt, tempt anyone. Or it says that God does not get weary. This is Jesus was tired. Right. The Father is greater than I. So many passages that are going to be used to say that Jesus is not God, that's because it's a text that is reflecting that Jesus is, is really, was really uh, a full human being, and he actually is still a full human being. Yeah. And uh, so we can't, uh, we can't be surprised by texts that are saying things that are characteristics of a, of, a, of a person yeah. that is on this earth. Yeah, thank you for adding that. And if you if you look at most um, heresies, most like cults that give up Jesus, or they don't give up Jesus. Most cults that give up Christianity, what they do is they either diminish the deity of Jesus or they diminish the humanity of Jesus. Um, they either say, no, Jesus was a man, or they say Jesus was a god. They don't keep both of those in tension. All right, so just a quick summary of sort of 32 to 37. Maybe the best way to kind of summarize what Jesus is getting at here is to simply say, on the day that Jesus returns, let him find us doing exactly what a disciple should be doing. Following his commands, loving him in faithfulness. Yes, though. I'm, <clears throat> for the happiness union explanations of this, I've heard it like a thousand times. And I feel like it's just a thing, an explanation that makes sense, but we don't see it in the text. It's not the text that tells us that it's in his human nature that he doesn't know uh, or not, you see. But because that's what makes sense the most, so that's what most of biblical teachers uh, take. Um, for myself, I don't know, I don't see why in this person, because they are like three different persons, that the father wouldn't would know and the son wouldn't know. That's what I mean. It doesn't like, it's not a paradox for me 
Um, and it's not a contradiction. So I don't see like why do we have to go that far? I totally, I, I again, it makes sense and it seems biblical, but like just it doesn't come from the text. This explanation, you see what I mean? So I disagree with you, and here's why. And and uh, let me say a couple things on this. The first one is. The Bible does not have to put teaching in parentheses in every uh, sentence or section or pericope in order for us to draw inferences from the text and reach conclusions, okay? God actually wants us to participate with him in the work of interpreting scripture, okay? Um, the problem with, so, so what I'm saying there is, uh, I don't think the text has to explicitly say this is this in order for us to say this conclusion is drawn from this passage, okay? The problem with what I think I heard you say, though, and let me make sure that I understood what you said correctly. Did you say the father can know something the son can't know? I, I'm just, like, thinking, like, why would it be impossible? Okay. I'm not, like, saying this right. is the interpretation. I don't know. Uh, yeah. But I'm just asking. Like, yeah, so, so it's a fair question, but the truth is that is a Trinitarian heresy, okay? Because what you have said is that Jesus is not the same as the Father, because there are some things the Father has in his eternal omnipotent, or I'm sorry, omniscient mind that Jesus in his divinity does not have in his mind, right? That's, that's heresy. What you said is there's two different gods. No, um, <laughs> then help me understand your position better. Uh, I'm just uh, like thinking as they are two different persons, so why isn't there any difference in between them? Well, it's like asking you why. But they are three different persons, but they are also one and the same. Absolutely. So in, this, in, yeah. this, in the case of Jesus. But they still have differences. So. Would you say the same thing of the Holy Spirit? Well, for example, like, you know, the son became a man, but the father didn't become a man, right? Yeah. So there are differences in, uh, in between them. Yeah, yeah but uh, answer my question. Would you say the same thing of the Holy Spirit? About what? That um, the Holy Spirit knows things that the Father doesn't know, or the Father knows things the Holy Spirit doesn't know? I'm not saying this. I'm oh. just asking. Like, okay. Why would it be uh, different? Like, the, the Holy Spirit is not in the text. Again, I come from the text. I'm like, the Holy Spirit is not in the text. I'm not putting yeah. the Holy Spirit. As Jesus just say, that the Son doesn't know, but the Father. And that's that's it. That's just what's written. So, like... Right. Uh, yeah, so then I would say to you, really, the primary distinction between the Father and the Son is the Incarnation. That's really the only distinction between the Father and the Son. So then we can say, if that is the distinction, then it is in Jesus' humanity that he does not have this information, not in his divinity. Th this is really, really hard, Don, and like it's a totally legitimate, fair question, and I'm going to mention this in church today. It took the church 400 years of talking like this and arguing and, and casting out the, the heretics who reached conclusions that diminished the divinity of Jesus in order for the church to, to really kind of get a handle on this. And a lot of times, really the best we can do is we can say, well, he's not that and he's not this, right? He's not only God and he's not only man. Because there's no way for us to conceptualize 
that God is fully God and fully man in the person of Jesus Christ. But I think the, the danger that you run into is in, in, in the position that you're bringing up in this question is that you, you split the mind of God even in himself. And this is so hard because a lot of times as Christians, we are functional tritheists. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a guy tell me one time, well, you can't pray to the Holy Spirit. I'm like, well, why not? The Bible nowhere forbids that. Uh, is it uncommon? Yes. Are there a few examples in Scripture? Yeah, I think there potentially are. Um, but if the Holy Spirit is God, then I can approach him as God, just like I would God the Father. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think even super intelligent professors, more brilliant than me, have a hard time even explaining something like this beyond where we've gone with it. Or because we have really a limited understanding and knowledge of God. Right. Yeah. 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 But you see what I'm talking about? Like when you take the text and then you call, you go to have the most uh, helpful explanation. And then you can, you can, it's it's also a danger sometimes. Maybe not for that because it, it makes sense. But we can go to somewhere else and say, oh, that, that's the explanation that makes sense, you know? Yeah. But it doesn't come from the text. So that's kind of like what I'm like. Okay, we have to just be careful. Like, well, where do we see that? Like, you see what I mean? Yeah. And I, my, maybe my reply to that would be, this is why systematic theology is so important. Because what you're expressing is biblical theology. What does this particular text say? Systematic theology says, what does all of scripture teach us about any one topic? So when we get to the person of Jesus Christ, we can look at a text like this and we can say, well, biblical theology doesn't have much to offer us right here. But when we incorporate everything that the scriptures teach us about the Son in his divinity and his humanity, what we understand is Jesus must be speaking as man because that's where his only limitation is. He's, he's not limited outside of the incarnation. Again, it's super, super hard. Like, I don't, I don't even know how to explain it because how does the omnipresent God even, like, fit in Jesus? That is a paradox that is beyond us. Don, really, really good questions. And I really appreciate your commitment to that biblical theology piece where it's like, whoa, well, let's be careful with this particular text. Let's not, you know, read into it things that aren't there. Okay, how about we uh, move on to four, uh, chapter 14. So it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the f scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like this? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. 
and they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. That's, that's pretty rad. Okay. So verses 1 through 2 here give us a time stamp, which increases the drama of the narrative here. The clock is ticking, right? What, what's the time stamp in verse 1? Right, two days before the Passover. What's significant about the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Well, connected to those ceremonies was also the Day of Atonement when Jesus would be sacrificed as the true sacrificial lamb, right? So Mark is letting us know his time is, is shortening quickly. Um, and then Mark also gives us a little picture into the plotting of the priests and the scribes here. So what is in their heart? End of verse 1. What is it? Seeking to kill him. Yeah, murder, right? These men have murder in their heart. Um, and we've already seen that they're really unrighteous, ungodly people because they, uh, they reject Jesus as the Messiah. In reality, though, they don't want this guy on the stage because he's a threat to their control, their power, their authority. And, uh, and yet, what are they afraid of? End of verse 2. The people. So Jesus is a, a man of the people. The people love this guy. And uh, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, the priests, they know that if they do something to eliminate him in a public setting where there might be a mob present, they're going to be in big trouble. Okay. So again, Mark is setting the stage for us to understand why Jesus was arrested in the middle of the night. And actually, it's going to be even more than that because if they can arrest him and they can try him in the middle of the night and then they can come out of that trial declaring him guilty. You Maybe you know that old saying that uh, a lie travels twice around the world before the truth has even gotten off the ground or something like that, before the truth has even started running. So they, they can circumvent the, the thinking of the mob by completing all of this in the dark, declaring Jesus guilty, and then of course the rumors will spread, oh, he's guilty, so we need to crucify him, right? Okay, um, verses three through five. So Bethany is a village that's on the slope of the Mount of Olives there, just outside of Jerusalem. Um, this Simon here, Simon the leper, could be uh, the man that Jesus healed back in chapter Mark, or I'm sorry, back in Mark chapter 1, verse 40. If you want to go back and look at that, in that instance, he's not named, but maybe we're, we're revisiting that character. It's possible. Mark doesn't record the name of the woman here who brings the perfume, but if we assume that John has this same story told in his gospel, in chapter 12, then John records the name of this woman, and it's Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, okay? 
Nard is this perfume that she brings. It's an aromatic oil. It comes from a, the root of a plant that grows predominantly in India. It's native to India. And the text emphasizes in verse 3 what, what about this? Very costly, right? That is a kind of commentary from Mark. If you didn't know, this is very, very expensive. Uh, and then you get the commentary from the apostles in verse 5. 300 denarii. Hopefully your um, Bible puts a little footnote there. What is the worth of that? Is it 300 days wages? Yeah. That's a lot. I don't know about you. That's almost a year's salary, right? So that's a significant amount of money. Um, this is kind of interesting, too, that uh, David was anointed king of Israel in much the same way. He had oil by Samuel poured over his head. And what's amazing about that is that wasn't done in a palace. It wasn't done before a huge audience. Um, very similar to Jesus being anointed here, it was done discreetly. It was done uh, away from the public eye for the most part. So Mark also doesn't name those who are upset about this. It just says, uh, verse 4, there were some who said to themselves indignantly. Um, but John does tell us that it was Judas. And John also tells us why Judas was upset. Does anybody remember the commentary there? Yeah, right. He was the... Uh, the treasurer of the group, right? He, he was in charge of the money bags and he liked to sneak for himself some of that money. So, you know, if nobody else was watching the accounting, 300 days wages would be quite a bit that he could siphon off of the purse that belonged to Jesus and the apostles and put in his own. So John gives us a little bit deeper picture into uh, the nature of Judas and his character. <clears throat> and so the concern of those watching, um, saying, hey, look, this is a very expensive bottle of perfume. It could have been sold and given to the poor. Is that a le legitimate concern or illegitimate? Yeah, I think it's a totally legitimate concern, right? Jesus, we can do a lot of good with 300 days wages. You know, I don't know. In today's dollars, that would be tens of thousands of dollars, right? It's a legitimate concern. So here's another interesting theological point for us to think about for a second. Um, man is sometimes forced to be utilitarian when God is not. Does anybody want to try and give a definition to utilitarian? Or utilitarianism is a philosophical worldview. Okay. Utilitarianism is the ethical question, how do we accomplish the most good with the limited resources we have? So, I'll give you a utilitarian ethical dilemma. Imagine that a mine caves in, and in the caving in, it creates two kind of separate rooms. 
and in one of those rooms you have one person, and in another one of those rooms you have 10 people, okay? If you're running out of time and you only have, let's say, 20 hours, and you can't do both of them, let's say the situation is such that, you know, you have to choose either left or right. We're gonna either get this one person in this cave or these 10 in this cave. Which do you choose? Yeah, I mean, you would save the most people, right? And you would, you would. You would put the resources to go towards the 10. Why? Because if you went towards the one and 10 died, you'd have to say, I could have done more good, right? Mm -hmm. So this is utilitarianism. And here's the unfortunate thing. Man often has to make utilitarian decisions, right? You do not have unlimited resources or unlimited time or unlimited wisdom. And so sometimes you have to make an ethically difficult choice. But God does not have to make such choices. God is not forced to be utilitarian. So here's where this matters is God does not have to have the 300 denarii from this perfume in order to meet the needs of the poor and the needy. Man might have to make a decision between those two things, but God doesn't. You know, even that illustration of um, a shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to go after the one, that is only meant to be an illustration of God's passion and love for each individual person. Because the truth is, God never has to leave the 99 to go after the one. He can do both. Got it? So God can care for the poor and also receive the blessing of this anointing. And the truth is, the disciples should have known this by now. Because we've seen situations like this all over the place. Do you remember the feeding of the 5,000? Uh, Jesus, we got five loaves and three fish. Is that what it is? Five loaves and two fish? I can never keep the numbers straight. It's a small amount of food. And there's 5,000 people here. Utilitarianly, what are we going to do? I guess form a line and the first 50 people get a crumb right? But you can see God is not bound by these ethical dilemmas. He can take the meager resources of the loaves and the fish and he can make them sufficient to feed everyone. Does that make sense? Yeah, it applies to our daily situation all the time. Yeah. We panic first before we approach God. Absolutely, right? God, how are you going to solve this? There's only so many resources. What are we going to yeah. do? Instead of just trusting God. Yep. That's crazy. Yeah. I also feel like there's a... I'm sick. I'm sorry. That's my wife. Um, I also feel like there's kind of like, not just... Uh, I call that pragmatism, but I'm not, I'm not thinking... Yeah, like utilitarianism and pragmatism are essentially the same thing. Okay, all right. Uh, so I, I also feel like there's more like a question of priority. Mm. You see what I mean here? Than just there's both actually. Uh, so just not one problem, also priorities. Because I'm thinking like ap application to us today. Like uh, pragmatism is not a bad thing, right? God gives us that so we can make good decision and discernment as well. So we can make good decision. Um, it's like the story with the widow when she gives all of um, everything that she has yeah. to the temple and she's staying with nothing, 
you know. So that's not, and Jesus is not praising that. On the contrary, it's kind of like uh, blaming the teaching of the Pharisees. Sure. Uh, but here, Mary comes and gives almost everything, the most precious thing she has. But hey, that's a good thing. So that's like this whole thing, you know? Yeah. And here, she, he's praising it because it's a priority. The priority is like, he's gonna, he's gonna die. And it's more uh, essential to uh, honor him that way than just keeping it. Yeah, amen. And that's that's exactly what Jesus says. Like, guys, this wasn't wasted, right? In fact, there's nothing greater that could have been done with this resource than offer it to God in this way. Um, and, I, and I would honestly say, you know, you could draw from that this idea, too, that, you know, if you're not, how do I say this? If you're not giving to support the ministry of the church, but you're giving to like the homeless and the poor, actually you should think about your financial priorities. Um, because, and hopefully the church is giving to do those things. And I'm not saying you should do, you know, either or, I think you could do both and. But um, what I'm saying is we want to give our money to we want to surrender everything that we have to Jesus for his glory, his honor. Um, so does anybody else need to go to the cove? Because I don't want to mess up. I told Trisha that I wouldn't, um, that I would end class early, but I'd like to keep going if, if the cove teachers just need to leave. I think that's why Monica snuck out. Okay. Um... Okay, so yeah, get to, to this point. You know, if you look at verse 6, Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Um, we should say that no extravagance spent to honor God is too much. Do you believe that? Yes. He owns everything. Yeah, right. And he's worthy of everything. Yes. And actually, what God is doing is he is directing all creation, everything that he has made to this focal point, that it will all honor him and give him glory. Right? So whether this perfume was poured out on Jesus or not, everything is going to be brought to that particular end, that God would be honored. God is worthy of all honor and praise and glory. Nothing wasteful was done here. In fact, she probably should have cracked open a hundred jars. And that still wouldn't have been enough, right? Um, and, and sadly, this is about the only honor that Jesus is going to get as he spills his blood. So mankind has come up woefully short in this picture. And the juxtaposition is really beautiful, really bright here. Think about this. Expensive perfume is poured out on the Son of God, not being nearly enough honor for Jesus. And the men see and think it's wasteful. In contrast, the, the precious blood of Jesus is poured out over mankind, being far more honor than we can ever deserve. And men look at it and treat it with contempt. Do you see that contrast there? I think I should say that again because I think it's really powerful. Expensive perfume is poured out on the Son of God, not being nearly enough to honor Him. And men look at it and think it's wasteful. 
In contrast, the precious blood of Jesus is poured out over man, being far more honor than we could ever deserve. And men look at that and go, it's worthless. Fascinating. And clearly the disciples still do not know who this man is. They don't anticipate the death that is going to overtake him shortly. Um, if they if they had comprehended the things that Jesus was saying to them when he said, you know, the Son of Man will die. Jesus has said that now three times in Mark's Gospel. Um, they too would have been rejoicing over this act of pre-burial preparation for his body. Uh, verse 7 is also kind of interesting here. What does Jesus say that we'll always have? The poor. The poor. So the utopian pipe dream of creating a perfect society where there's no poverty or injustice is foolhardy. Um, because Jesus said you'll always have the poor. I mean, as, as long as there is sin in man's heart, there will be injustice and there will be poverty and there will be ruin and destitution. And so uh, when you hear, you know, government solutions to solving the problem of poverty or something like that, be very cautious because they are promising something that Scripture has made clear is really not possible. Now, does that mean that we should just be like, oh, well, Jesus said we're always going to have the poor, so forget them. Can't solve that problem. No, certainly let's do good. Jesus even says uh, right here, uh, Verse 7, you can do good for them. So we should when we can. But let's remember that it's a fool's errand to think that human efforts can solve injustice or poverty. Uh, this socialistic idea of a fair society where everybody pays their fair share and everybody gets their fair share is just a political way to manipulate, manipulate you. It's not possible. Um, think about this. If you were to take everybody's wealth and all of their goods right now today and you were to distribute it evenly between everybody, what would, it, what would you have within a generation? Everybody's poor. Yeah, you'd have disparity. Maybe not everybody's poor, but you would have some wealthy people who took the money and went and started businesses and produced more money with it. And you'd have other people who went home and bought a bigger TV and another bottle of vodka and squandered it. Right? So there's no way to solve this problem, and Jesus speaks to that end. Um, it's, it's yeah. also like there's some kind of like related you know, why Jesus told the, the Jew to, you know, give the tenth so they will not become greedy of, you know, their, their material position, so they have to share it to the poor. Yeah. Um, so in the Old Testament ethic, you have the year of Jubilee. Uh, is that kind of what you're referring to? Yes, yes. Or are you f referring no, to... No, no, I'm referring to the, you know, the, the commands that you have to give the tenth of your, you know, first fruits of your whatever, labor or... Yeah, the, as far as I know or understand, though, that tenth, that tithe was specifically for the operation of the temple and the financial provision of the Levites. I'm not, I'm not aware of any Old Testament command that says that part of that tithe was for the poor. Is anybody else aware of that? Yeah, it was uh, 
there was uh, multiple ties. So there was one that was 10% for the Levites, that was one that was 10% for the festivals, and there was 10% every three years that was like half for the widow, half for the poor, half for the foreigners. Okay. So it was like, uh, like 23.3%. Yeah, okay. So the Old Testament has a couple different ways to like mitigate injustice among God's people, assuming they actually follow it. One of the ways was also the year of Jubilee, where after every every seven cycles of seven years, so the 50th year, all of the property would revert back to uh, its original family owners, which helped tamp down on generational poverty, right? Because if I'm a bad dad and I squander the property of my family, my children don't have to end up in slavery for five generations because the property reverts back to me. So that's interesting. What what is what is the solution in the new covenant for poverty? Is it a tithe? Is it a year of jubilee? I think it's a yeah, absolutely. So that's a great example. I would I would dig down even a little bit deeper to it's just the heart, right? Paul talking about generosity generosity says that you should give freely. God has freely given you Christ. And so you should be a person who offers to help those who are poor because you have received so many riches, right? So I guess what I'm trying to get at here is instead of some kind of command, like a tithe, you just have a transformed heart that doesn't necessarily need a strict command, like you must give 10%, but will be moved to respond to God in the same kind of generosity that he's shown. Does that make sense? I mean, the truth is that's everything in the New Testament. Everything that we do flows out of this transformed heart that causes us to obey God's commands. Um, yeah. You know, I come from, I come from uh, Europe, France specifically, and uh, when I was there, I did not realize that there was, uh, we, we were saying there's the right, there's the left, but it's actually, it's, it's all left. It's all socialist. And so we don't realize until we come out and we go to different countries and we realize what is done elsewhere and how does that compare. And so the idea that, you know, you just take all the resources and you split them evenly to give to everyone, it's actually inherently uh, evil. Because you're taking from people who earned and you give to people who have not earned. And so it's uh, the idea that we should all be equal. That's wrong. We're not equal. There is a man, there is a, a, a woman, and they are not the same. They are equal before God, but if someone is going to run faster than someone else, they are not equal. Someone yeah. is going to have talents to earn a particular wage being a doctor, and, and I'm not a neurosurgeon, so I'm not going to deserve his wage, and that's fine. Right. And, and so, so that's inherently wrong. It's yeah. not just to take from someone who has earned right. to give to someone who has not earned. And also, it, it, uh, it's harder to get certain professions, to get this skill or to study you know, 12 years. It's hard. Yeah. So this person shouldn't be paid the same way someone who has not done that. Right. That's not to say that someone who has not gone to school cannot earn because it's going to be deserved. It's going to be dictated by the market. What's yeah. the value provided by the service? Yeah. And then there's another thing is that the idea that if you just take the government, take everything, like it's very popular today, right? Many people are fooled today by that in the US. It, it, it assumes that the people 
who are going to redistribute are actually not totally depraved. Right. Because if you look at every country where people are actually doing any, anything that's close to socialism, and, you know, in Russia or in China or in France, what happens is all the political leaders are super rich. And they get a salary you wouldn't believe. Right. It's like three to ten times more than the average salary or even salary of a lawyer or something. Yeah. So if you look at what is actually being done, you have to realize it's not possible. And that's not the way it should, it should be done. It should be done that someone who is rich, he is giving to the one who doesn't have right. from the heart. Yeah. That's the solution. Yeah. And, and, and within the biblical framework, the family of God, what you see is that those who are poor, they... So the wealthy serve the poor by helping them financially, and the poor serve the wealthy by praying for them, right? If, if, if you're out running a business and you're working 12 hours a day, you may not have the time to pray that a poor person who's stuck at home, maybe who's an invalid who can't work, has to pray for you, right? So there's kind of this almost exchange of goods, actually, in the ethic of, of Scripture. And I'm, gl I'm glad you brought that up because Scripture is very, very clear on this that um, a laborer is worth his wages, and if any man is unwilling to work, then he should not eat, eat. right? We don't carry that load for people forever. Um, and unwilling to work is the key, right? Not necessarily unable, but unwilling. Um, and I, I would add to this, you know, when you take something like socialism or communism, it comes out of Karl Marx. Karl Marx was literally like a Satan worshiper. I shouldn't say literally like, he literally was. A Satan worshiper. Um, he, 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 so his philosophy was demonic, and you can see what it does. It drags, it creates injustice, it drags people down. Anyway, we, we should wrap up, and uh, but I, I, I do want you to understand that um, you know trying to meet the needs of the poor as a Christian is a good thing. Will we ever solve poverty? No, not until Christ returns. Let me just mention one other thing here, which is. Jesus uh, says to them in um, verse 7 that they will not always have him. And I just want to point out that uh, what Jesus means there is they will not always have him in physical bodily form where you could pour oil and anoint him. Okay, Because shortly after this, John's gospel will record what we call the upper room discourse in chapters 14 through 17 where Jesus says, I'm going away, but don't be afraid. I won't leave you as orphans. I will send the helper. And the helper, the Holy Spirit, is the spiritual manifestation of the presence of Christ in the life of believers. Yeah, Matthew 28, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. That is in the spirit of God present with you. Yeah, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us all of the spiritual riches of your kingdom in Jesus Christ. And we praise you for that. We praise you that we are not spiritually impoverished people. We think about the Beatitudes that say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Um, we are by nature poor in spirit. And yet you have done this incredible thing to open up the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, even to people who are spiritually poor like us. And we praise you for that. And I ask that our lives would be an offering to Christ, a sweet fragrance um, that pleases him. I ask that you would help us to love you with all of our hearts. And I thank you that you have given us your spirit, that 
Uh, is the, the presence of Christ with us in this life? Um, bless us as we go from here, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.